Nerds. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Ready to expand your financial game? NerdWallet can coach you on smart strategies like choosing investments, finding your next credit card, and setting a budget that works for you. Score major points towards your summer vacation by learning expert tips for choosing a high-yield savings account and how to build wealth by investing in index funds. Slide into summer with smarter decisions in 2024. Follow NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next? Last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to the Deep Dives Podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson, and I'm very happy to be here for the first time this draft cycle with Albert Gim. Albert, how are you doing this fine afternoon? It's been so long that I'm not sure if I know who you are anymore. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so my name is Nick. Nice to meet you. <laughs> no, it's it's great to be here. Great to be back. Um, this Draft cycle has been kind of a roller coaster for me personally. Um, yeah, I haven't really talked about it, but uh, my wife is expecting. So uh, a lot's been going on. Um, but I'm really happy to be here, dude. I'm happy to be here. I love recording with you. And we're talking about a guy that I really enjoyed writing about. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm just amped and I'm ready to go. Well, I congratulated you before on the behind the scenes stuff, behind the scenes, but congratulations again, now that we're in a semi-public space here and uh, let's dive right into the Kashan George stuff. And so it's funny because you sort of say it up top, but I do sort of want, I'm curious for a sort of deeper answer about why you chose to write about Kaishan for this article now. I think, so the biggest thing with him was, I think he ended up on my radar a couple months ago um, as he was starting to get more, he, he, he was becoming more acclimated into like the rotation and stuff. He, I, he was, I think he was just getting more comfortable overall. But um, I noticed him and then I saw someone on Twitter. I think they posted like a little highlight package of him. And I was like, cool. So I, I've known about him for a little bit. But I wanted to do the deep dive. And it, the funny thing is, as I was starting to get into him a little bit, um, I was uh, talking to um, uh, a, a respected draft analyst and he had gone to see him live and he was like, dude, this guy is huge. And I was like, OK, that's good. Right. Um, size, good, tall, good. Can't complain. So he was like, he, his exact words to me was, he's a large lad. And I was like, okay, <laughs> good start. And then he texted me again about like almost at halftime. And he's like, yeah, he hasn't scored much, but he's been the best player on the floor. Um, and I think, you know, for me, you know, hearing that and then doing the deep dive and stuff, I, I think it, he became a guy that I was really interested in because I kind of like second, third, fourth option guys. I think the stars are awesome and they get obviously they garner all the attention and the praise, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, if we're talking about team building philosophy, you need those other guys. Right. Yeah. And so I looking at Keyshawn, I was just like, oh, he seems like he's going to be a really good other guy. And I enjoy talking about other guys and writing about other guys. 
So that was kind of my thought process into how I got into writing about it. I do want to stay on that point for a minute. It's very interesting to me. It's sort of like the reverse Cam Thomas of like, when I was evaluating Cam Thomas, basically my entire evaluation was, this is a player who I tend to underrate because you know, everybody gets drawn in by the flashy scoring. And, you know, I was worried about what else does he do? Right. And so, you know, I have a similar sort of vibe to you with this of I'm fascinated by, you know, the players who are the connecting guys who, you know, okay, you know, there are not that many NBA players who can put up 20 points a night, right? There's an even smaller number who can put up 20 points a night in an efficient manner, but ultimately, if you have like three of those guys on the same team, they eat into each other's productivity, right? Like, you know, it's asinine to say it, but only one person can have the ball at any given time, right? And so if all that you can do is contribute to scoring on the ball, you know, it plays into something that I talk about all the time on here of, you know, avenues of playing time, right? Like you have to be a spectacular scorer to get the ball from you know, whichever team's best scoring guy, right? Like even the Detroit Pistons, right? You know, a team that they're playing better recently, but, you know, they were on track to fight for worst team in NBA history honors, right? Even then you have to be really good to take the ball out of Cade Cunningham's hands. And so it's the kind of thing where, you know, okay, if a team needs that kind of scoring punch, then yeah, you know, getting Cam Thomas makes sense, right? But there's only one Cam Thomas who can have the ball at any given time. If you have someone like Kaishan George, it's like, okay, He's someone who will make the connecting play. He's someone who will space the floor. He's someone who will play smart defense, right? All of those things that, you know, okay, maybe it's not as flashy, right? Maybe it's not, you know, putting points up on the board directly. But if you are helping your team, first of all, to, you know, put points up on the board as a complimentary guy, but second of all, to, you know, take points off the board on the other end, right? A 90 to 80 win is a win just as much as a 140 to 130 win. Yeah, yeah. No, I 100% agree. It, you know, it's kind of crazy that you bring up Cam Thomas, just because the same guy that I was talking to, he actually brought up Cam Thomas and was like, oh, hilarious. Um, he was like, dude, like with Keyshawn, it's he's got so much to offer on the floor. But the funny thing is, like, I've never been a, you know, sorry, I'm still paraphrasing what he was saying. But he's like, I, I was never really a Cam Thomas guy, but his scoring is so, like, his scoring talent is so overwhelming that he's just going to continue to get contracts because ultimately you're always going to find a handful of teams in the league that need somebody to go out there and put the ball in the bucket. And he is so overwhelmingly good at doing that, that it'll be almost impossible for him to not collect contracts over the course of however long his career is. And, um, but it's funny, like when we start talking about upper echelon, title content, right? We, we kind of put the label on teams and we call them title yeah. contenders. Those guys generally don't always work out so hot. Um, it, it kind of becomes a thing where you need guys who can do more than just the overwhelming scoring stuff. Um, and so Nick, to your point, I, I just feel like with a guy like Keyshawn George, the thing that was so intriguing about him was his game was so multifaceted. Um, kind of like a, if we go into baseball terminology. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Baseball's right around the corner. Hey, it's, been, it's been months since I've gotten to talk about baseball <laughs> because you haven't been on the damn podcast. Um, it's kind of like, you know, the classic five-tool type of guy, right? Yeah. When you're looking for a five-tool prospect. And Keyshawn George is kind of like that because he offers so much. And obviously, we're going to get into the finer details of, you know, his game and my, my the piece that I wrote about him. But in terms of his playmaking flashes, obviously the shooting has been great so far. Um, but, you know, with caveats, I, I put in my um, article as well, you know, lower volume, whatever. But he's got good NBA wing size. Um, anyone you talk to or hear talk about him and his game, the first thing anyone ever brings up is uh, IQ, IQ, feel, feel, IQ, feel, whatever, you know, it's like, that's all anybody wants to talk about with him because he's such a cerebral player um, on the court where it just feels like, and, and, you know, you know, another funny thing, Nick, I actually went and just asked like a bunch of people, what does feel mean to you? And um, I got a lot of different varying answers, but like overall the general like answer that I got that I put in my in my thing too in my article too is just like you know knowing what to do 
um, you know, knowing where your teammates are, making high level reads on the floor. And that's the type of guy that Keyshawn George is. So writing about him was actually a ton of fun. It's interesting. I think the that sort of concept plays really well into what I feel like has been the evolution of the league in the last couple of years, specifically of teams that, you know, the big three was the thing for a while, right? Like you need three all-stars, you need three superstars, pieces around them don't matter as much. You know, it's just about the, you know, big three guys. And it feels like over the last couple of years in particular, there's been more of a shift to, you really only need, you know, to maybe even just one superstar and then a roster around them that makes sense, right? Like you talk about the Denver Nuggets and, you know, obviously it's built around Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, right? But the idea being there that, you know, Christian Brown comes in and plays right away because he's someone who has experience on a championship team, has experience playing off other people. And it's the kind of thing where, okay, you know, again, if there are only so many guys in the league who are going to be the star or scorer, have the ball in their hands all the time, if you can play well off one of those guys, then it's a lot easier to, you know, find a sticking place in the league than if you're someone who, no, I need a very specific context to succeed. And, you know, sometimes the guys who need a very specific context to succeed can work out, right? It's, Mm -hmm. you know, not the kind of thing where, you know, say someone like Andre Drummond, who was an all-star a couple times, who has bounced around the league a bit since then, but wherever he goes, you know that he's going to absolutely destroy the boards, right? That's the kind of thing where, okay, you know, there's, if you're that superlative at that one skill, you'll find a place exactly like what you're talking about with Cam Thomas and presumably getting contact contracts for a very long time, right? Like, okay, has ball will travel, you know, there are teams that could use that, but there are a lot more teams that can use a player who can fit in as a cog in a machine rather than they have to dominate the ball to be effective. Yeah. Yeah, I know for sure, Nick. And it's funny, like, this is something that, You've mentioned, right, right? It's a trend that we're seeing and we're going to continue to see it. I don't see that going anywhere because, yeah. and, and just to your example, right, of the Nuggets, they also had guys like Michael Porter Jr. and Aaron Gordon, right? And in a small sample size, Reggie Jackson. But like they, they, they needed these guys who could kind of fill the remaining gaps around a Jamal Murray, around a Nikola Jokic. And so, you know, and just, you know, very specifically, if we were talking about like Aaron Gordon, right, what he offers on the defensive side of the ball, what he offers offensively too, right, as a guy who could even at times, you know, be an initiator, be a, you know, pick and roll screener, the stuff that he can do with his off-ball cutting, all that stuff. It, it's all super valuable. And so considering that this is a year where, the perception of the class is not great. And anywhere, any media outlet that talks about the NBA draft, they all kind of start off when talking about this class by saying it's a weaker class. We haven't seen one like this since uh, 2000, 2013, blah, blah, blah. Right. And so if we're, if that is the case, and I don't even know if we're, if that is necessarily true, it probably is. But if we're thinking about this being a weaker class, if you can find somebody of that ilk that we're talking about, right? A guy who can be a supporting role player, be a third option, be a fourth option, be a guy that can fit in next to a superstar and maybe even accentuate some of the strengths of the superstars on your team. This might be the the draft for it. And this might be the draft where you end up taking a guy like that a little bit higher than you might expect, just because you might want to leave this class with a sure thing rather than, a major, major lottery team. Yeah, I actually, it's funny, I actually talked about this with Metcalf last week when we were talking about AJ Johnson and the sort of ideal of process versus, you know, production. And it's interesting because there's a very weird sort of range for me in this draft starting around 20 or so where my my sort of immediate instinct is, you know, and I've talked about this before with Jay Crowder specifically as the sort of go-to example that I use for this of, I don't want to just be looking at this class and saying, oh, I have no idea who's going to be any good. Let's just take the wildest swing that we can, right? I mean, I actually wrote about this today, uh, well, yesterday by the time y'all are listening to this, but about Tijan Saloon, where it's like, okay, the lottery ticket, right? He's the mystery box. And sometimes, you know, in a draft where there's not as much certainty and where there's sort of this perception that it's a weaker class, you know, I, I get the concept of wanting to swing for the fences because you're not sure of anybody, 
But my thought is much more towards the side of, look, I just want someone who, like, if I'm picking in the 20s in this draft, I just want someone who can be a productive player, right? Mm -hmm. And I brought up Christian Brown earlier, right? Like, he's someone who, admittedly, I was not quite as high on as he ended up going in the draft. But the concept to me is what I think is really important of, look, if you're a team picking in the 20s, unless you traded for the pick, you're a top-tier playoff team. As you mentioned, you're probably either a title contender or close to it. And so then the question becomes, do you really need to take a big swing on a guy hoping that he becomes your third superstar? Or do you just need someone who can plug in, play 15 minutes a game in a rotation? And, you know, I I still will, I think I'll take my victory lap on Jaime Hawkins for a little bit longer. So I'll, you know, extend it here. But my whole thing with Jaime was, look, he's going to be an NBA player. And, you know, I didn't think he would be as great as he's been so far for the Miami Heat. But my entire idea was, he's comfortably going to be your eighth man for however long he's on your team. Right. And if you're getting that kind of pick in the twenties and you just need one more spot to fill in your rotation, opting for someone who you're confident can be a part, can play a part in an offense rather than, you know, Oh, he's well, the Cam Thomas example is one thing, but the flip side of like, this guy's a long-term project, right? Like he's going to spend vast majority of his rookie year in the G league. He's going to, you know, maybe get some playing time year two, right? Like if you're a playoff team, on the one hand, you can theoretically afford to bring players along slower. But on the flip side, if you're just one piece away, taking a swing on someone who misses completely, you know, you've essentially wasted that pick. And in this year of all years, I'm leaning more towards who do I think I'm confident can play a role at the NBA level. You know, even if that's like a 10 minute role, it's more than, okay, they, you know, play 35 minutes across three seasons and don't get their fourth year option renewed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I hate to say it, but it kind of reminds you of the Warriors, um, Mm. which, you know, that was the COVID draft when they took James Wiseman. And I I know there are still people out there that still believe in James Wiseman, but um, yeah, but it, it's tough. And Nick, I think I agree with you. And, and also there are a lot of different factors, right? Because you can be a contending team, but also your window might be closing, yeah. right? Like it, it all depends on timelines as well. Like to give you an example, you, you just mentioned Rucker. Look at the Boston Celtics, right? Look at what they've done and the team that they've built. And it, it's funny, they have these two superstars that are still young. They're mid twenties, right? And so Jason if you're the Bo- only 19. Huh? Sorry. Jason Tatum's only 19. Correct. Still 19. Um, but if you're the Boston Celtics, it's it's a thing where, honestly, if I was running the Celtics, I actually wouldn't mind taking a shot with the Celtics just because my superstars are so young, which I know I, I some people may disagree with that. And I'm, I'm not pretending like I know everything and all my answers are right. But um, but then if you're like the Clippers, per se, where your two stars are early thirties or getting to mid thirties pretty soon. Right. Like I think Kawhi and Paul George are both my age or Kawhi might be a year younger. So they're both like 33, 34. Right. So these guys, that window is closing a lot faster than Tatum and Brown. So if I were running the Clippers, I'd be like, cool, get me Zach Eady, you know, get me an uh, upperclassman type of guy that I know what they can do. Or like a second year guy, get me a Kyle Filipowski a guy who I've seen a couple of years now in college who's been really, really productive. Get me a Dalton Connect, you know, a five-year guy, a guy who has shown now as he's taken the step up into like high major playing for Tennessee, oh, he can really, really go and get a bucket and, you know, be athletic and do all that stuff. Kevin McCuller, right? Another option, right? Would be really interesting for a team like the Clippers just because, yeah, they're title contenders, but also their window is a lot smaller than like the Boston Celtics. So um, I think that whole discussion is so complicated, but I'm with you. I think for me personally, if if my team is a quote unquote title contender, I think I would look for a guy who can contribute because the pie in the sky dream of adding a guy who could potentially be the heir apparent to whatever superstar you have um, right now is always tough. And also the Jaime Hawkes thing that you brought up is hilarious because Jaime Hawkins was an upperclassman and people thought like, okay, we know what he's going to be, blah, blah, blah. And now if you were to ask a, like a Miami Heat fan, they might tell you, oh, he might be the next Jimmy Butler for them. 
right, is how yeah. people may be seeing his ceiling. So it, it's really interesting to think about how perceptions can change and how we view players can change. But ultimately, I think it all depends on your circumstance. And also, it really comes down to your scouting department and how you're how you're seeing these players and what you're actually like looking for and targeting. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very, very important clarifying point of, you know, there are some teams that, as you mentioned, have a smaller window and therefore the need for immediate contribution is more imperative. And, you know, it, it's funny, there's sort of, you, you mentioned the Celtics, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it through a slightly different lens now that you've brought up the Celtics of look at, say, the difference between, and I'm just going to lean on them because they're the team that I watch the most, but the difference between, say, the Sacramento Kings and the Cleveland Cavaliers, who just played on Monday night. And mm -hmm. the Kings are extremely top-heavy, and the Cavaliers are ridiculously deep. So if you're Cleveland, and the bar for even getting into the rotation is that much higher, maybe it's worth it to take the swing on the guy who might be a superstar because you're not quite at that title contender level yet if you're Cleveland. And if you get someone who's, you know, a star small forward to fit into your rotation, that's going to make a much bigger difference. Whereas if you get someone who can be a ninth man in a rotation, congratulations, Craig Porter Jr. already isn't playing, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have a much higher bar to entry versus if you're the Kings. And, you know, I've talked about this before specifically with Dylan Mitchell, who I think is, someone who's going to have a very interesting NBA career, but I think will have a decently lengthy NBA career based on, you know, the shot is non-existent and that's its own problem, but based on everything else he can do. Right. And so that's the kind of thing where like, if Dylan Mitchell is playing 15 minutes a game off the bench for the Kings, instead of some sort of morass of Kessler Edwards and Chris Duarte, then yeah, that's a huge plus. But if you send the same guy to Cleveland, he might not get any playing time. And then the whole thing is a pointless exercise. Yeah, I mean, the Kings, I'm really interested to see what you guys do in the next, what do we have? Like less than, do we have a less than, we're less than 48 hours now, right? So yeah, that'll be really, listen to this. It'll be close to 24. Right, right. So it'll be really interesting to see what you guys do. But regardless of all that, I, I think the, the point that we're both making here, Nick, which I think is so important, is context is everything. Context is important. Coaching is important. Scouting is important. There's so many different variables that go into the selection of a player and the overall creation of a roster. And I think that's why, like, basketball and any sport, I think just roster building in general is such an interesting topic to think about and talk about just because there's so many different philosophies and ways to view how to build the perfect team. Because look, even if you're a team that wins a championship, there's no guarantee that what you've done is perfect. Um, there's no guarantee that what you've done is going to be repeatable year after year, unless you're the Kansas city chiefs um, where you, you know, just draft a supernova and he just figures things out himself. Right. So uh, it, as long as we're not talking about a supernova, it's, it's always going to be tough to talk about um, team building, but with Keyshawn George though, um, I, I think he's a guy that is just going to make sense for a lot of teams and because, and that's the thing, right? Like when we were talking about prospects, if a player is desirable by a vast majority of teams, that kind of speaks to their draft stock, right? Like the more desirable you are to the vast majority, the higher you're probably going to go. And so with Keyshawn, as I was writing this piece on him, it kind of goes back to everything we just talked about. He's just a guy that I think NBA teams are going to look at and be like, oh, his, his scout is not that complicated. Like I can throw him uh, you could throw him on a lottery team. You could throw him on a title contender. He'll he'll fit either window, right? If he's a guy that you want to give some time to develop because your team is too, too stacked, sure. He'll, he'll gladly go play in the G League next year and learn and grow and what, develop whatever. And also, if you're like a lower-end team and you need a guy to come in and offer some stability and like kind of knows what he's good at already, Keyshawn can do that too. So with that in mind, once again, I think that's another reason why along the lines of what we're talking about here, he should be highly, highly desirable. So that's actually a perfect way to transition back from the esoteric weirdness to actually talking about the player that you wrote about for this article. And 
it's, I don't know, it's interesting to me. Keyshawn has risen up my board more than pretty much anyone in the last month. And I think a lot of that is, you know, sort of the, it's it's a weird way of putting it, but almost setting expectations in the way that coming into the season, I thought, okay, Wuga Poplar is the guy for this Miami Hurricanes team. And, you know, if there's anybody who's going to, you know, be a potentially draftable prospect, you know, okay, maybe Norchad Omir wins over enough people, but, you know, maybe Matthew Cleveland pulls out a wild season. And to be entirely fair to Matthew Cleveland, he has, right? Like, fantastic for him that he's been able to pull that off after the transfer. But Keyshawn George was, you know, not even in the top three of guys that I was thinking of as draftable prospects heading into the year. And so it's the kind of thing where, you know, part of, you know, I'm actually mentioned this in my, not the one I wrote today slash yesterday by the time you're listening to this, but my previous editor's notes of, it's very important, I think, to be willing to be wrong in the draft space in particular because it's such a wildly varied thing that nobody ever gets even close to completely right. And so if you're just sort of stuck on, oh, well, you know, before the season, he wasn't really a prospect, so he's going to have to do a whole lot to sort of, you know, win his way back in the conversation, right? It's like in any draft year, it's important to be willing to say, okay, I was wrong about this guy. He's, you know, much better of a defender than I thought he was. You know, his shot m- numbers might not be pretty, but the shot itself looks good. I think that the numbers might be a factor of, you know, how closely he's guarded rather than how good of a shooter he is, right? It's the kind of thing where you have to be willing to reevaluate. And with Keyshawn, it's the kind of thing where, you know, as the season's gone along, it's been very clear to me anyway that a lot of the connecting stuff that he does for the Hurricanes will work a lot better when he's got a better team context around him, right? Like, you know, the Hurricanes have some really great players, but they've also been a very inconsistent team this year. They've been struggling particularly as of late. You know, they had a stronger start to the season than they've been recently, and they got absolutely destroyed in their game last night against Virginia. But, you know, it's the kind of thing where being a connecting piece, you honestly can really only be as good as the pieces you're connecting to, right? Like if you don't have anyone to pass the ball to, it doesn't matter how good of a passer you are. And so it's the kind of thing where, you know, and again, I've been wrong about Cam Thomas. I will continue to, you know, admit that, hold my flag up, right? But the idea being that Cam Thomas was someone who I expected the higher levels he goes up, the less well his game plays because, you know, being a 40 point scorer in high school and then a 30 point score. Well, I mean, he was like a 22 point scorer at LSU, but the concept being like, if you can be a 40 point scorer in high school and you can be a 30 point scorer in college, you know, at the NBA level, you're probably not going to be a 30 point a game scorer because basically nobody is right. So the flip side of that is guys like Keyshawn, who, if you're someone who your best skill is being a connective piece, being a tertiary playmaker, being a spot up shooter who can spread the floor, then you have much more space on teams with better players because they're drawing more attention. And, you know, you have passing windows to guys who are better able to finish plays because again, you're playing on a better context around you. Yeah, dude. I, I think sorry, and I keep sighing every time. Yeah, it's like, what have I, what have I done to you, man? No, it's like you start off by saying you don't even know who I am anymore, and then it's like every time I say anything, it's like, ugh, this fucking guy. It's like really, <laughs> well, man. I'm just trying to process because I want to give you a good answer. There's a lot of pressure being on the Deep Dives podcast. I want there shouldn't be a good guest. Look at the jackass you know? you're talking to. <laughs> okay, but something I was thinking while you were talking, you mentioned how heading into the season that Keyshawn wasn't a guy on your radar. Same for me, right? Like Wuga Poplar, obviously Matthew Cleveland, sure. Um, But it's interesting because he's not the only guy that this has happened to this year. It's kind of a similar, a similar thing with like, even like a Reed Shepard or Mm -hmm. uh, a Johnny Furphy recently. Right. Because look like Reed Shepard heading into the season, you looked at that Kentucky roster. We had Justin Edwards, the number one on our big board, right? We had Justin Edwards. We were talking about Aaron Bradshaw. We're talking about DJ Wagner, who personally I was never high on. I'm so happy I was right about that. I'm not usually right about anything. Um, DJ Wagner. And then who else were we talking about? You know, Rob Dillingham, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Reed Shepard is probably going to be the first one drafted out of that group. If I might be crazy, but I think that might happen. Right. And then also, who else did I mention before? I mean, whatever. Regardless, we have these guys that 
weren't on our, but as you mentioned, there's so many different variables and things that happen over the course of a season. And with a guy like Keyshawn, you mentioned it, this Miami team, uh, <laughs> tough to watch sometimes. Right. And the, the type of player that he is, you're so right. It is more of like, you know, the sum of all the parts, right. Where it's not just going to be because Keyshawn's good. The rest of the team is going to be good because he's not like an overwhelming force type of guy. He's, he's a, he's a connective piece. He's a team guy. He's a, you know, I, I a hundred percent agree with everything that you said. It's because he really does feed off of, the team and the roster around him, which, you know, at certain times doesn't turn out so great because, you know, sometimes his teammates have really off nights. Right. But if you look at it through the other end of the spectrum, you start to go like, okay, if you put him on a good team and things are going well and you kind of throw him in there, I think it's really, really important that, you know, to see what that looks like as well. And the last thing that I wanted to say about Keyshawn before we move on, like him kind of like, suddenly appear and like having this kind of like mid-season bloom is also interesting just because he is not the player that they recruited and and I, and I talked about that in my piece like originally they were looking at him as like a point guard you know because that's kind of what he played in France he was just like 6'4 six, 6'5 six, guard straight up guard and then they recruited him signed him and then he showed up on campus like three four inches taller and they're like cool you're gigantic now um, but you still have all the ball skills, all the passing flashes, you know, all that ability to you. You're just much taller, longer and 50 pounds heavier, which is a huge difference. Right. And yeah. and honestly, like he's gained 50 pounds, but I think he still could gain another 50 pounds. Right. The guy is like he's he, he, he isn't like at his peak body yet. You know, I think he could still add some more muscle, get some get a little bit stronger, like I outlined in my piece. But that's kind of what happens with people of this age right if you're 17 18 19 whatever uh things like late growth spurts happen things like you know development these things happen look at kentucky and their guys look at dj wagner uh, rob dillingham uh, adu fiero like the body transformations those guys have had just in their short time in in, in uh in kentucky so it's a really interesting thing where we will always i think we're going to continue to be so wrong about players just because there are so many things that we just can't account for. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, again, the thing of NBA teams have a lot more information than people in the public space do. I don't think I'm making any waves by making a statement like that. Right. And they still get wrong the vast majority of the time. Right. And so it's just the kind of thing where there's, you know, again, as you mentioned, so many little things that go into it and, you know, you mentioned sort of the growth spurt for him. And that sort of leads into the discussion of the offense section where a lot of what he does is, you know, sort of predicated on, okay, this was a guy who played point guard, right? This is a guy who knows how to read the floor from the top of the key, because that's what he did his entire youth basketball career. And, you know, the sort of most famous example of this ever was Anthony Davis, right? But the idea being of, if you learn how to be a point guard and you learn how to read the floor like a point guard and you learn how to see the game like a point guard, if you grow five inches, those skills don't go away. You just have five more inches to see over the defense. Right. Right. No, a hundred percent agree, dude. It's been really interesting to watch with him because as you mentioned, his role has changed a little bit from what, you know, what he was asked to do in France, but overall, like the skill set is still there. And I, I really enjoyed doing the deep dive and, you know, creating that little like uh, highlight package that I put in my piece with Keyshawn, just because you can see the remnants of who he used to be and how those remnants are going to be a big part of his career moving forward. Like because of those guard skills, like he's got a nice handle for a guy his size. And now we can say that because he's taller. He's six, seven, six, eight. Right. Right. Um, I think his teammates think that he's actually like six, eight and who knows, maybe even be moving closer to six, nine. Right. So he's a really, really big dude with a really nice handle because he spent most of his life handling the ball and he's got really nice playmaking flashes to him as well, which I, which I posted. And to be fair, to be totally fair, there weren't a ton of flashes, but also that's because of the role that he's playing for this Miami team, right? They don't give him a ton of leeway and a huge volume share for him to show off some of the skills that he has. But 
the thing that I love about him, though, is regardless of how much volume, he, I think he's only playing like 21 minutes per game, regardless of the lack of volume or the lack of time or opportunity, he's still popping in the limited time that he has. And I think that's really important, right? Because sometimes we can be a little too overcorrective um, with certain prospects where we're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, this looks great, but uh, he's playing like 16 minutes a game, right? And sometimes we can do too much to overcorrect and to be a little hypercritical and be like uh, and discredit at times, you know, uh, certain players abilities and um, just their talents just because they're doing it in small sample sizes. Well, you know, with a guy like Keyshawn, he's doing it in small sample sizes because that's all he can get because he's yeah. playing on a veteran laden team. So, you know, for Keyshawn, I think that was the biggest thing that I really wanted to kind of hone in on while I was writing it on him and kind of just for myself as well, just reminding myself, like, don't, don't lower him on your scale or in, according to my standards, just because he's not playing so much, just focus on what he's actually doing is what I really wanted to do. And regardless of the numbers, if you just look at the tape and you look at the time that he's on the floor, he's doing impressive things on the offensive side of the ball. And I think that alone should get you excited about what this will look like, because of course, to be fair, it doesn't always look the same when you extrapolate it, right? Once you, yeah. you know, Give more minutes, give more opportunities. It doesn't always look the same. Look at Jeremy Grant, right? Um, however, you know, but to Jeremy Grant's credit, he did, you know, score a ton when he's with Detroit and stuff like that. It's just you realize that, okay, that's just not for him, right? You don't want to give the keys to a guy like Jeremy Grant and say, hey, run our team. We trust you. Be the number one option. But for a guy like Keyshawn, that's not his intention, right? His intention is to be a supporting role player, and he's got all the tools to do that. Now give him some more minutes, and I think you'll just see more of the same. So before we move into the defense, um, we should sort of talk about the knocks on the offense. And, you know, I've said before that I tend to be very glass half full optimistic about prospects in the sense that I'm very much looking for reasons to praise rather than reasons to denigrate. But the flip side of that is if you're not being honest about what a player can and can't do, then you're not doing the job correctly. And I think it's important to point out a few of the things that you mentioned in the article and I think the biggest ones for me are really that he's shown that he can be a three-point shooter, but the other two levels of the game do not come as easily to him. And that's, I think, you know, there's the one thing where you mentioned the mid-range shooting being the sort of last area for growth of growth for him on offense, but I'm more sort of focused on the scoring at the rim on the interior game because that's, I think, a similar sort of thing to what we've been talking about this whole time with, you know, role and fit on a team, right? Like, Keyshawn's not going to be someone you're going to ask to create buckets in the mid-range because that's not his game. And there's no reason to ask him to do that when, A, he does other things better, and B, you know, if you're not a primary initiator, then the number of mid-range looks you'll get and the importance of being able to hit those mid-range looks is a lot less important than certainly for someone like Keyshawn being able to get to and score at the rim effectively. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, again, some of that is trying to determine how much of this is okay. You know, he's, he's struggling in this area. You know, this is something he needs to work on versus he just grew three inches and added 50 pounds. He has no idea where his body is at any given time, right? Like, is that something that, you can expect to, you know, improve as he sort of gets more used to his frame. And that's what I would argue is that I think there's certainly concern and dismissing entirely that concern is not fair to him or to the process. But also the flip side of it is like, just an example, I was very worried when Turquavion Smith came back to school about his finishing at the rim because he had a skinny frame and did not have broad enough shoulders where it seemed like he was going to be able to add weight. And that played out. Like he continued to struggle scoring at the rim and that's really held him back so far in his professional career. And, you know, again, with Keyshawn, it's like, okay, he's already got a bigger frame than Turquavion ever had, right? That's, you know, that's just using the specific example here. But the idea being there's some element of this that is, this is an area of concern for him. And there's some element of this that is, look, he just needs to figure out where his body is at any given moment in time and space. And, you know, again, it's one of those things that we'll see over time, but I think it's, I would certainly lean more towards he's just figuring things out, then this is going to be a long-term problem. 
Yeah, I, I think with Keyshawn, the biggest thing that I noticed was, and I, and I mentioned, right, there's some awkwardness to his game, which is to be expected. He grew a ton, gained a ton of weight. He's still getting used to his body, which I think um, is a real thing um, that deserves to be mentioned, right? But with with him, the reason why I I felt a little bit more optimistic with his finishing specifically is just, just because I think he has really good touch. Um, I also thought he showed some r- real savvy with how he was getting to to the rim. Obviously, uh, he wasn't doing a ton of it, hasn't taken a lot of free throws. But I- I'm still encouraged just because when we talk about projections and what the final version of all this looks like, I just feel like his frame, as you mentioned, I think his frame frame will allow for him to get bigger. Um, I, I do see him adding more muscle, more strength, and that giving him more confidence to attack the rim and and show off some of that savviness and ability and touch. Um, it's just he'll never have the vertical pop. Um, I, I don't think he'll ever be like a vert- big big time vertical athlete. Nor do I think he has like a very. Nor do I think he has like a very quick first step either. Um, it's more of he's crafty and he knows how to get to his spots without being super fast or, uh, you know, being able to jump really high. Um, but the reason why I mentioned the mid-range stuff with him is just because I didn't, as much as I see him being like a supporting role player, I also didn't want to pigeonhole him either mm. just because I've been wrong about this before. Like even in my piece about Jaime Hockey's last draft cycle, um, which I, I think I got a lot about his game right. But one thing that I did write in that in, in that piece was like, I, I thought he was going to be a shining star role player, right? But, you know, now we're not so sure what he might turn into, right? He may one day even become a number one option if things keep going the way that they're going. And who knows how much he's learning from Jimmy Butler right now, right, under his tutelage. Um, and, you know, Jimmy Butler kind of came into the league as a quote-unquote role player too, and a guy who had to kind of find his way into the that Bulls rotation and then eventually became a star himself, right? So with Jaime Hawkins, that could be the same. And so I, I kind of want to keep that same um, door open with Keyshawn, where I do believe he's going to be a role player and a rock-solid role player, but there's always that 1%, 3%, 5% chance that he becomes something more. And if he does, I think what'll keep him from that might be the mid-range stuff and also some of the in-between stuff. So when he's all the way at the rim, I think, you know, there have been some interesting things there, but you're not seeing a lot of floor, floaters, not seeing a lot of push shots, not seeing a lot of like one dribble, two dribble pull-ups in, in, into a mid-range jumper. Um, and now, although there have been some of it, just not enough where you would start to think that he's a three-level scorer, as you mentioned, right? And so that's kind of where my critique of his offense kind of came, where my, my mindset was, I believe he's going to be a role player, but you never know. And so if there is a chance he becomes a one, a number one, number two option type of guy, then I'd like to see more growth in that mid-range game was kind of where I was coming from with all that. No, I totally get it. I think there's sort of this idea that, you know, when we're trying to figure out a player's evaluation and where they fit, the vast majority of it is, okay, what's the 50th percentile outcome, right? Like what's, you know, if I were to, you know, have some way to run a simulation that runs this guy's career 10,000 times, right? What is the most likely sort of outcome or even sort of a range of outcomes? Like it's, you know, okay, what's the... 40th to 60th percentile, right? Like what's the slightly positive end? What's the, you know, slightly negative end? And I think there's a lot less of, you know, what's the 95th percentile, what's the 99th percentile outcome? Because that I think requires a change in a way that, you know, you mentioned with Keyshawn that, you know, the mid-range game needs to go from, you know, sort of there in flashes, but not really to an actual part of his game. But the flip side of that is, it's it's very tough because there's sort of the concept of look if you try and comp every player to the best possible outcome yeah. you know you're not being fair either to the player or to the guy who's the best possible outcome right like if every 6 7 wing who can't shoot is Kawhi Leonard you're doing it wrong because guess what the Kawhi Leonard is the exception that proves the rule right like the number of guys who go from sub 30 to 40% three point shooter right away is basically just Kawhi, honestly, right? And so, you know, the concept of, okay, you know, the 99th percentile outcome can get people in danger, right? Like, 
you know, if you said, oh, I don't know, I see some Draymond Green in Isaiah Mobley, which, mm -hmm. you know, Isaiah Mobley was someone who I very much liked as a prospect, as someone who I thought was great team defender, really good passer, excellent handle for his size, all those sorts of things. But if my assumption is, oh, okay, great connected passer, really good defensive big man, that's Draymond Green. Oh, okay, Dylan, Dylan Mitchell, he's going to, you know, become an MVP and a multiple time all-star because he's just going to rebuild his shot from nothing like Kawhi Leonard did, right? Like, you have that kind of expectation, it can lead you to bad places. But the flip side of that is ignoring that sort of best possible scenario outcome leads to, as you mentioned, you know, sort of pigeonholing guys who aren't exactly ready to be pigeonholed, as it were. Yeah, no, I agree, man. I, I think sometimes it, it's hard. It's really hard. Comps in general are ridiculously hard just because yeah. <sighs> there's... We talk about it all the time. So many goddamn outcomes. Who knows, right? And at the same time, like comps are also interesting though, because it, it it's not like it's going to color a prospect's perception per se, but it's also good to think in those terms just so you have an idea of the type of player that you're going after or that you're scouting. So I see it both ways. It is tough but it's also necessary. And I think with a guy like Keyshawn, it's like you said, I, I him becoming a number one or number two option probably is like a 1% type of thing, but um, you never know. You never know. And, and I, it's always good to kind of put that into the ether of the, I don't know, just <laughs> so that you don't look like such an ass when you're wrong. Yeah. Again, very important in this space to be willing yeah. to be wrong. Cause if you're, <laughs> if you're trying at all, you're going to be wrong a whole, whole lot of the time. Let's move into talking about the defense. And this is one that's interesting to me because Keyshawn is very skilled in an area that I tend to overvaluate is not really the right way of putting it. But basically when guys have great steals rates, I tend mm -hmm. to buy in more than maybe I should because steals rates are something that translate very, very directly from, you know, professional slash college level to the NBA. The flip side of that is that steals also can be, you know, you can get two steals a game by ripping a guy twice a game and, you know, taking the ball the length of the court. You can get two steals a game by gambling in the passing lanes 10 times and eight times it's an easy layup and two times you get a steal and that shows up on the stat sheet, right? And with Keyshawn, it's sort of, I don't know, for me and, you know, feel free to correct me if you think I'm completely off here, but for me, it feels more like, He's got the sort of underlying skill of the really quick hands that, you know, makes it seem like, okay, this is something that he can continue doing. But as you mentioned in the piece, he relies on that a lot. And that's where you can get into trouble with, okay, you know, you think that you can get a steal and generate a turnover. That's, that's a great look for your team, right? But if you're doing that by overplaying your position and, you know, letting the guy cut back door behind you, you've lost more than you were going to gain by, you know, turning that possession the other way. Yeah. Yeah. No, Nick, I, I think it, it's a, it's a funny thing when you get really good at something and you just keep going back to the well for it. To give an example. What's I remember, that like being, hmm, being good at something? True. Uh, we're not the right people for that. Um, but I, I remember back in, uh, I think this is like fifth grade, sixth grade. I had a buddy in my neighborhood who had found um, this like really cool arcade uh in the lower east side of manhattan and um it, it was this place on like the third floor of this like janky looking building but you walk in and they there were like just tons of arcade games there and i remember um he took a lot of pride in being good at tekken um which if you're listening maybe you're aware maybe you're not aware but it's a video it's like a fighting video game right and he had figured out one move with the player king who's like this wrestling guy with like a lion or a tiger mask on. And it was just like a low kick that was so unstoppable that literally no one in the arcade could beat him. Like he won like 50, 60 games in a row, right? Just by spamming the low kick? Correct. There was like wow. literally no answer for it. I think it was a glitch in the game that he had figured out. <laughs> um, and But then you think about it, and this guy in my neighborhood was going to the same arcade week after week, just doing that one move to just own people. And, you know, it, it made me wonder, like, 
I, I eventually stopped going to that arcade with him because it became really boring to watch him just destroy people with that one move. And the thing is, my point that I'm trying to make is that he became a not so well-rounded person. Oh, no. I apologize. I apologize. Um, that's no, not fair to him. I hope he's living a great life uh, with a great family. Um, but um, the point that I'm trying to make with Keyshawn is you're right. He has a skill. Um, his hands are really quick. He knows how to use them. He's got good anticipation in the in the passing lanes for sure. The issue, though, with him, though, is at times I think he really does become over-reliant on those things. And that's the thing that, uh, as a Nick fan, the great Walcott Clyde Frazier talks about it on the telecast all the time. He goes, oh, you see the Knicks, they're playing defense with their hands and not their feet, right? And that's something that you actually see with Keyshawn sometimes where because he knows he's such a dynamic uh, defender with his hands, right? And because he can, you know, poke at balls and use his length to really make things difficult for a ball handler, sometimes he becomes over-reliant and then his feet are not in a good position or he's not in a good stance to prevent a drive, stay in front of his man, et cetera, right? Um, but to his credit, and I know this is a bad excuse, he is young, you know, and he is learning. And now there are some caveats to that too, because he freaking played professional ball in France. Right. Um, But, but I I do think it is a thing that you can, he can be coached out of is my biggest thing. And for me, more than anything else, I just like the fact that there is an aspect of his defensive game that he's confident in. Um, It is a real weapon for him. It is something that he knows that he is, that he has an advantage over other players. And it's just about now him becoming more mature and kind of honing that skill to not use it so much where it makes things, you know, kind of puts him in a, in an unfavorable position. Um, and, and with that though, you know, if he can cone that a little bit, he moves his feet really well for a guy who's still getting used to his body. I compared him to Kevin Knox where Kevin Knox looks terrible uh, guarding out in the perimeter. Even now Kevin Knox doesn't look great um, just because his body composition is weird and his legs are too long. So it's like hard for him to get his feet settled under him at times. Keyshawn's not that guy. Like Keyshawn has grown a ton, but he's still very fluid with his, with his lateral movement. And so that makes me excited. He's got great length. He's got good wing size. He's a really smart intellectual player player so I think there's an aspect of his game obviously he's not a big time rebounder um but I think overall there's enough there there's enough there where with NBA coaching with him continuing to work on his frame and adding more muscle the framework the foundation of who he is as a defender I think is still strong enough to get excited about his outlook and once again just the fact that there's even one aspect of his defensive game that he feels like he can hang his hat on that is a really positive sign for me. Yeah, I think it, it's funny because this do, this example doesn't always work. And there's a very specific example where I got burned by this. But, you know, a lot of the time, if you're someone who, as you mentioned, has really high feel, really high IQ for the game, knows where he's supposed to be, right? That's, I think, the big thing of, you know, when you're when you have the size and length that he has, you know, a lot of a lot of the team defense is just okay. Where do where do I need to be? Right. It's not like I'm digging in at the point of attack, and I have to make sure my guy doesn't get around me. Because you know, again, he moves fluidly on defense, but as you mentioned, he's not an elite athlete, right? He's not going to be chasing and recovering guys if they blow past him, right? But the flip side of that is, he has more than the requisite size to be someone who can be a helpful part of the team defense, and he shows such awareness of the floor on the offensive end that you know, it's, it's easier to project him figuring it out than someone who, you know, I'm worried about their ability to know where they're supposed to be at any given time, right? It's like a lot of that is, you know, okay, maybe he knows where he needs to be, but his body hasn't quite caught up yet. Some of that is just, okay, there's a little bit of ball watching, which there is for most prospects. That's more the exception than the rule, as is, you know, struggling to fight over screens. Again, that's like, it's rare when you see someone who's, really good at that as a prospect and you know it's the kind of thing that for me you have huge points in their favor if you can fight around screens well as a prospect because a lot of guys don't but as you mentioned the you know the sort of calling card skill of the quick hands is one thing but you know a lot of it is just you know defense is hard and defense takes time for guys to figure out it takes time for guys to figure out at the college level it takes time for guys to figure it out at the nba level but you know again i think the key that you mentioned is 
he has a foundation to get there. And, you know, maybe it'll take a little longer. Maybe it'll take a little shorter. You know, I think a lot of that depends on team context, depends on the coach, depends on what he's asked to do in a defensive scheme, right? But again, you know, the gambling for steals is maybe something you can cut back on a little bit, but the underlying reason that he's gambling for the skill for the steals is a real skill that he can rely on. Yeah, I agree, man. I agree. I, I just, it's something that uh, an analyst uh, draft analyst scout, whatever. I don't even know what to call people anymore. Anyway, one thing <laughs> he said who looks at film and stuff and says things. <laughs> one thing that he said to me that I thought was really interesting. He was like, dude, when it comes to these, valuations of players it really comes down to who has a less uh, the least amount of question marks mm-hmm. you look at a player and if this guy has 12 different question marks ah, you're not gonna be feeling too hot about him um but then you look at another guy and he's got about two or three question marks you should probably go with the guy with two question marks rather than the 12 and i think with Keyshawn, the more i think about him the more i look at his game and the reason why i actually on our latest big board that's going to be dropping this thursday right thursday Wednesday? it's going to be dropping the day this comes out Cool. Wednesday Perfect. morning. So, if so, you're listening to this, our big board is out. Yeah. Um, Normally, because... I would make the joke that uh, only Stephen would be listening to this episode before the article actually drops. Um, unfortunately, he won't be. But uh, <laughs> shout out to uh, you, Stephen. Shout out to you, bud. Um, I actually ended up with Keyshawn at 13 on my board, which is mm-hmm. high, and I, I get it. I, I know that's high. I've been high on players before, a lot higher than others at times, and I've gotten weird looks and whatever. I had, I'm the guy who had uh, Jed Howard at five on my big board for like half the season last year, and I still feel great about it because I think he's going to be awesome. But um, with Keyshawn, the reason why I moved him up so much on my board is just I, I don't see that many question marks. My main question marks with him are um, athleticism. Mm, how much stronger is he going to get? And what what is that, you know, at rim finishing going to look like in its final form? Other than that, I feel pretty good about his game, dude. And, and I don't say that. Obviously, I didn't even mention his defense as a question mark. And I don't say that. I think, I'm, I think he's going to be an all-world defender. But I think he's so smart and has the NBA requisite wing size and lateral abil- ability that I think he'll be just fine. I think at his worst, he's going to be passable is where I'm ending up right now, just because he's not, he's, he's a smart dude and he knows what he's doing on a basketball court. And I think once everything kind of aligns for him and eventually uh, that day will come, I believe where the the things, you know, the things that we're, you know, worried about, I think they all that, all that will come to fruition. And I don't mean that in the negative sense. I think it's going to be figured out. I I think he'll be just fine as a defender. I I don't imagine him becoming a huge liability, a big hole in your defense. I think he's just got too much going for him um, as a defender for him to ever fail. Um, So with that in mind, it's hard. It was really hard for me to not be excited about his NBA role and what he'll look like. And I don't even mean in year one, right? I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. like years three to five what he'll look right. like in the nba and Keyshawn very easily could be a second contract guy right a guy like d- who doesn't really show too much for the first team that he's drafted by but maybe on the second team or third team he ends up on maybe he really blossoms into who we think he can be just because i still think there's a real acclimation period with him um in terms of him getting used to his frame and he's going to add more weight and he might even grow taller Right. So there are a lot of different variables there, but I think eventually he's going to be a guy who will be a contributor to a really good NBA team. I think that's, I think that's really the key point is the year three to five, because, you know, and this is something that we talk about all the time. Basically nobody is a good defender their first year in the NBA. Right. And so with Keyshawn, it's the kind of thing where I'm pretty confident, you know, sort of sort of along similar lines to what you were saying of I'm pretty confident that he can get to below average defensively rather than bad pretty quickly, right? And that's really the thing of look, if you're contributing enough as a connecting piece on the offensive end and you're not a weakness on defense, like there's a difference between being below average and being exploitable, right? Like there's a difference between say I'm not thinking of good examples off the top of my head, but like the difference between say De'Aaron Fox, who I, you know, struggle with some of his defensive films sometimes, but he's not bad versus an Austin Reeves who gets hunted on a regular basis. Right. And I don't think Keyshawn's going to get hunted. And, you know, the question is, you know, going back to the conversation we were having earlier about the 99th percentile outcomes, like I think there's a potential for him to be, you know, not just decent, not just average, but a good defender at some point. And, 
I think that's going to be further down the line as it is for virtually any prospect. Again, virtually nobody is good defensively year one, but you know, that 99th percentile outcome, you know, is if he's, as long as he can get to a place where he's not a hole on defense, then his offensive contributions can shine. And I'm pretty comfortable with the notion of, again, not him being, you know, some fantastic all defense player, but somebody who, if they can settle in at comfortably below average, then their offensive game more than makes up for it. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I agree. And th- th- it's kind of the, the nature of the NBA now too, right? I mean, aren't that many good defensive teams anymore, you yeah. know? However, once you get to the playoffs, what happens? Everything slows down. Defense becomes important. And then suddenly everyone's tune changes, right? The whole season long, everybody wants to talk about Joel Embiid, 70, uh, 60 points, uh, Luca 70 points, blah, blah, blah. You get to the playoffs and it's like, okay, who's going to win, you know, 103 to 100? Who's going to yeah. win 99 to, you know, 96? Um, these things happen just because uh, the stakes are higher. Right. They care more about the defensive side of the ball and teams don't want other teams to score on them. So it's an important thing. So I, I'm right there with you, Nick. And I think for me with Keyshawn, where I landed with him once again is I think he's going to be a good defender. Don't think in my this is just my opinion. I don't know if he ever becomes great because at the same time, I think to become a truly great defender, I think you need all the requisite skills and frame and length and all that stuff. But you also need a certain mindset. Um, to be like a truly elite defender, um, a Drew Holiday type of guy, Draymond Green in his prime. There is an aggression, a, uh, a front foot type of uh, mentality that you need to truly become like an elite, elite defender, which I don't think Keyshawn will ever be. But I think he will. And it's a funny thing. I was talking to Maxwell a couple of days ago and he was talking to an NBA scout. And what what Maxwell brought up was if Keyshawn... If Keyshawn never gets stronger, and I forgot what his other variable is, but it was something like, if he never gets stronger and never get becomes more athletic, is he just Cam Johnson, right? And that's an interesting thought, right? Like, if Keyshawn doesn't ever really get much stronger and doesn't add a ton of athleticism, maybe he could be Cam Johnson. And what's wrong with Cam Johnson? You know, a guy who contributed to a really good Phoenix team, and right now, um, obviously isn't in the best situation in Brooklyn, but is could be a very high, highly sought after NBA wing guy, right? And a guy who can contribute to a winning team. So my, my thing with if Keyshawn's basement or floor is Cam Johnson, I sign me up, especially in this class. I'd love a Cam Johnson in this class. Yeah. I'd, I'd take Keyshawn top 10 if I knew he was going to be uh, Cam Johnson, top 15, whatever, you know? So um, that's kind of where I'm landing with him. I think he'll be a good defender, maybe not ever great. That's more than enough for me, considering all the different things he can do on offense. Yeah, if his floor is a 15 point a game scorer who started for multiple teams, that's a pretty solid floor, and that's the kind of floor that gets you taken in the top five, honestly, especially in this kind of draft. That's true. That's true. Exactly right. And which is why I have him in the 13. There you go. All right. Anything else before we wrap this one up? Um. Um. That's another big uh, sigh for my no, terrible hosting. No, 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 it's not that. I'm just, I, there are things that I wanted to bring up. I, let's go, Yanks, dude. There we go. go. Yes. Come on, like I'm still a little underwhelmed by our off season. I thought we'd get another starting pitcher. Um, you know, I was hoping for Blake Snell. I was hoping for maybe we go get Shane Bieber. Bring Monty back. Bring Monty huh? back. Bring Monty back. <laughs> Dear God, I, mean, I I don't know, maybe, but I wanted more of like a front end guy, you know, like guy who could be like a number two to Cole just because we don't know where Rodon is. But anyway, um, the most important thing is we have Juan Soto. Like, yes, he's a New York Yankee and he's going to be playing. It looks like they're going to put him in right field, which I thought was a weird choice because he doesn't have a big arm. But I don't care. Juan Soto is going to be batting in our top three every single game. And he's maybe the best hitter we've seen in 50 years. So I'm really excited. Yeah, it's not just Aaron. Uh, it's not just Aaron Judge, occasional Glaber Torres, and spray and pray. It's an actual real bona fide superstar. Also, like Giancarlo Stanton's doing yoga now, and he looks like he's lost like thirty five pounds. If you've seen some of the off season footage, which gets me excited because I'd like to see Giancarlo be a little bit more flexible and athletic. Like when he was on the Marlins, he used to run fast. He used to play. He used to run. Period. Yeah, he used to run. Okay, he used to run. Period. He played the outfield and was a, like a pretty decent outfielder at that. And then he comes to the Yankees and it's like, 
hey, did you just decide to go the Mark McGuire route? And just what is this? You know, so to see that he's lost a bunch of weight and he's looking flexible gets me really excited. I know our listeners don't give a damn about the Yankees, but hey, I'm here recording with you and I would be crazy not to mention the Yankees. Yeah. Go Yankees. There we go. That's 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 going to be the best note to end it on for everybody else has already turned off the podcast except for like four people in New York. So to the four of you, hell yeah, brothers, brothers and sisters, let's go. All right. Uh, I think that just about does it for us. He is Albert Gim. You can find him on Twitter at Albert O.E. Gim, and you can find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. You can find my written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com as well, and you can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson. If you've been enjoying the show, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback on the deep dive specific portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.